From IHRB, I'm Haley St. Dennis. This is a special episode of Voices. Welcome to Voices, a podcast from the Institute for Human Rights and Business. Here, we're seeking to elevate the range of perspectives on the role of business in the world and in people's everyday lives. Government and business leaders are not doing enough to combat climate change and limit global warming. We're not hitting our targets, not even close. And if that doesn't change quickly, then future generations are doomed. That is the dystopian mood music for COP26, the UN's annual climate change conference taking place this year in Glasgow. And it's exactly the subject of dystopias and utopias that we're here to discuss today. Because the study and understanding of utopian and dystopian periods throughout our history can help us navigate what's to come. My colleague, John Morrison, dove into the history of utopias and dystopias with one expert to ask which of the two we can expect to prevail. So, John, why are we talking about utopias and dystopias today? Haley, you might think it's a bit crazy that the you know, the week before COP26 in Glasgow, when we literally, literally have to save the planet, that we've gone and found an Italian professor to talk about utopias and dystopias. Um, I just want to reassure the listener that we're not completely crazy. There is method in our madness here. And there's a lot of dystopian thinking and a lot of utopian thinking around the climate debate. And we really need to understand it a bit more, I think. So you spoke with Danilo Palazzo, I'm currently the director of the School of Planning at the College of Design, Architecture, Art and Planning at the University of Cincinnati in USA in Ohio. So I'm curious, how does one get into the field of studying utopias? Yeah, it's not something that you normally see um, in academic uh, curricula, right? Now, Danilo is originally from Italy and um, he was doing his PhD in ecological planning. which is the process of better understanding, evaluating and providing options for the use of landscape to better fit within human habitation. And during his research, he found that there's a really long, rich history of analysis around utopian and dystopian influences and how our habitats, our cities and our worlds are designed. But as a teacher, he wasn't seeing his students thinking in this way. In fact, quite the opposite. They did not have uh, enough capacity, opportunities, let's say, to think out of the box, to think um, laterally, to think about, you know, a possible future. They were uh, in some way, uh, um, they put themselves into some constraints, you know, money, reality, and uh, and what was possible. And uh, even the, the time limit was really strict. It was a five years from now, 10 years from now. So then he went back to some of his utopian studies from his PhD and realized that what could be really helpful for his students is to think beyond their present generation, to think about future generations when they design for today. And, you know, that's where utopian and dystopian thinking could really help. And did he have a theory as to why students weren't really able to think about the future in this grand utopian way? For Danilo, it was really the fault of professors and teachers for not taking the opportunity to shape 
um, students learning in that way, the long-term, the intergenerational, the aspirational, if you like. We are forming professionals. We educate future planners. And so uh, there was this kind of uh, reaction to the fact that uh, why do you have to teach them, you know, what utopia is or thinking 100 years from now, 50 years from now, when at the end of the day, they maybe will be in an office just to, you know, do some zoning or land use plan for something that is much more, you know, mundane uh, than, 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 you know, uh, thinking about Blade Runner or something like that. So the study of utopias is, is indeed niche for sure, right? But it's a rich history and it's very illuminating. And to apply these lessons to our present and also the challenges ahead of us. So when you say it's useful to apply those lessons from history, I assume you mean, can you elaborate on that a bit? Let's start with the word uh, utopia, which breaks down into two parts. Topos, uh, the Greek word for place, and you meaning no. So for Thomas More, it was no place. Uh, and in Thomas More's book, um, Utopia, which, you know, have to remember Thomas More was very much in favor with King Henry VIII back then, um, uh, during the beginning um, of, of Henry VIII's reign anyway. Um, and he was proposing an alternative society, very different from the one he was experiencing um, um, in medieval London. All these ideas, all these uh, 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 um, projections of uh, cities with uh, a limited number of, of people, uh, uh, this, this society that actually was managed by elder people, a group of people, not just one, not just the, the king, people would have been um, happy to live there because they would have facilities, services, infrastructures, access to hospitals, health facilities and, 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 and being considered much more than just numbers in a society. So by calling it no place, utopia, he was coyly suggesting that it didn't exist, right? So that's what he meant by no, by no place. But actually it was a play of words because if you put an E in front of it, that's, that, that means good place. And so we don't know, right? To what extent Thomas More was playing with this idea that the no place was a good place. But it was very brave for him to, to put this out at the time, um, even, in, even in Latin, because of his relationship with Henry VIII, which didn't end well for him, as we all know, and challenging you know, the, the, the orthodoxy of, of King Henry VIII's reign was, was a risky thing for him to do. Even in thinking about that place and time, right, kind of 15th, 16th century, I can't imagine that visionary as he was, Thomas More was so visionary that he got everything right. He certainly didn't. And I think what we learned from this is utopias are very much um, embedded uh, in the time in which they were thought up. So Moore's utopia, this big island, is very problematic, actually, from today's perspective. Uh, a great place to be if you were an elderly white man. Um, but all the menial work were, were done by the women or by slaves. Slavery was very much tolerated um, in, in Moore's vision of utopia. So not exactly paradise. So what about utopian trends since then? Did things get better? So 
The foundation of America is really case in point. It, it speaks to the cyclical nature of utopian thinking. Um, a lot of people, a lot of Europeans left in the 17th and 18th century because they were escaping persecution, religious wars, um, famine, disease, tyrannical monarchs. Um, so utopian thinking was really at the front of that great migration. In the um, 17th and 18th century, that were actually uh, um, promoted by European that moved from a Europe that was at that time 74 millions of people, while in Canada and, and, and US in the 17th century, there were 800,000 uh, inhabitants and a lot of land, a lot of, you know, a lot of space to um, fulfill their dreams, move from one continent to another. I mean, they just uh, left behind Europe and opened uh, and created communities. New Haven, uh, uh, Utopia in Ohio. I mean, there are so many, so many uh, uh, utopian communities that uh, are based on European utopian ideas that have been created in 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 United States. So in a way, it sounds like they're almost in response to dystopian realities. I mean, is there a clear relationship between utopian and dystopian thinking? Are they two sides of the same coin? Let's just take the example of a really famous piece of literature from the US, um, The Wizard of Oz, written in 1900 by Frank Baum famous right um, world over the movie um dorothy and her gang searching for the emerald city definitely a utopian dream there and of course when they get there you know the, the wizard is just an illusionist he's not for real you know pull back the curtain and you just see how it really works and in the book um you find that uh, people have to wear green glasses to get into the emerald city so it's not even green <laughs> it's, it, even that's an illusion and Danilo gives another great example from history, that of the, the Shaker community from the 18th century. The Shakers um, had this, this rule, actually, that destroyed in some way the, the Shaker community in itself. They didn't uh, allow people to have kids or children their own, but the new Shaker could be should be evangelized in some way brought into uh, the shaker community that of course that rule collapsed at one point and so there were no more shakers because there was no uh, uh, um, uh, new uh, um, generations uh, uh, in, in that and so this is just an example, maybe a stupid one, but I mean, there were rules in, in utopian communities that actually just uh, made the things collapsing because the, the people had to uh, embrace completely those ideas. That's why, I mean, there is a component in utopias that is uh, you have to follow the rules. I mean, the it, and in order to, to make the utopia working, there are these rules and sometimes are strict rules. So utopian thinking, perhaps useful to a point, or maybe put another way, applied too rigidly, you can be utopian to a fault. So what 
I guess I'm curious, does that tell us about the climate emergency, which as we've said, is very clearly predicting a, a stark dystopian reality ahead of all of us. Well, firstly, he describes a few different things, different ways people often think about the future, right? Um, escapism, avoiding the problems um, of today, sci-fi movies uh, being an example, you know, taking our problems to another planet. <laughs> Retrofitting or window dressing, right, is another, fixing what you can and of course, there's the business as usual option. So he maintains that utopian thinking helps us avoid any of those three undesirable approaches to forcing people thinking about the, the bigger picture. It really leaves the baggage behind. The blue sky possibilities without constraint. He thinks it's, as an intellectual exercise, a really, really important thing for us to do. It, it's that mentality, which I think, I mean, if you get in the back of your head, you're able actually to, not to solve, but at least to face problem and to actually create uh, the opportunity uh, of a conversation with uh, with communities. There's a, a, a there's a, a evidence that uh, talking about utopian thinking, talk, talking about the, the future or the better future actually helps people to better understand the, 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 current, the current problems and then arrive to a solution which is realistic. So it sounds like that's exactly what we need when it comes to climate change to COP26 and all future COPs for that matter. Yeah, COP26, right. Um, so let's, in the midst of all the dystopian realities, you know, the, 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 maybe not dystopia, as we said earlier, you know, the, the, this is science-based. These are likelihoods now. Um, and people are coming forward with um, proposals, ideas of, of a great green new future, which, which you know, so, so, which is really important um, that we engage with these ideas. But taking the parable of the Wizard of Oz, um, let's make sure that we're not just seeing things through green tinted glasses. You know, we talk about greenwashing, um, and I think I think uh, the Wizard of Oz got there first with the green tinted glasses. Um, Utopias can have a very murky underbelly, as was the case in The Wizard of Oz. And so as people talk about smart cities, um, and Danilo mentioned some examples of this, you know, these might be net zero in carbon terms, but they can be based on a real denial of human agency, um, security borders, surveillance, um, invisible workforces, migrant workers, um, you know, a bit like um, Thomas More's Island, you know, the hidden reality for most people is not utopian at all. And Danilo also shares examples of this, even from the United States. You just said, you know, when you asked me, you said they live with people like that. Yeah, yeah. But that's exactly the key. Yeah. I mean, they are trying to figure out a way actually to live with people like them. So there's a this lack of equity, or there's a equity, but but between people that are the same. Uh, there's no actually, uh, and, and again, it's another escapism if you want. Yeah. I mean, you, you you try to stay away from the existing uh, uh, infrastructure, the cities, because cities are good, are the place where you can, you can grow, where there's density and you have opportunities and so on, but there are also problems. There's, um, you know, uh, uh, um, um, 
problems that are social problems, political problems. Uh, and, and so you try to figure out a way to get away from those problems. So the danger with these futurist cities is perhaps that they're utopian branded, but really kind of an escapist approach in reality, back to Danio's three archetypes, almost like utopianism can be weaponized. So when it comes to COP26, um, what we need is um, utopian thinking, but not utopias. Uh, we need the blue sky thinking. We need the uh, alternate realities, the futures that might, might be ahead of us. And we need to think big. But we don't want utopias in reality because of all the dystopian consequences that can arrive from that. So Danilo gives the example of, of Formula One's innovation with his cars. You have this these cars that goes, you know, at uh, speeds that we uh, cannot imagine on our on our uh, roads, on our streets. But the evolution of those engines in some way are going into, you know, the the car that uh, maybe you drive, that I drive. And so uh, and they are not designing cars to be one day on the street. And, and think about, you know, um, maybe this is more adapted as an example. Uh, there are now Formula E, so uh, electronic, uh, electric uh, cars. And so the evolution of that kind bring those things to the extreme, then will help to actually apply some of those evolutions into something that one day would be available or that it's already available on, on, on the market. That's a great example. And in a way, it brings us right back to the beginning to Danio's students and the importance of training future leaders to think exactly in this way. So that big problems are met with big solutions not the escapism, the retrofitting, or the business as usual we've lived with for far too long. Yeah, exactly that. You know, we as the human rights community, we're often labeled as utopian ourselves, that we are the ones that are out of touch with reality. And I suppose that's exactly why so many people got into this line of work, right? But not, not that we really believe that utopias can exist uh, in a real sense, but that they, that they're a mental construct towards which we should work. And I think it gives um, our community and the wider climate action community courage to think big. We need it now more than ever. This is Voices. We're trying a different format and we'd love to know what you think. Please rate, subscribe and leave a comment if you want more of this approach. 